Welcome to the Strive Podcast, where we embark on a captivating journey through the realms of mind, medicine, and motivation. I'm Simon Nam, a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm excited to have you join me on my conversation with Dr. Christopher Graffio. Dr. Graffio is an assistant professor of neurosurgery at the University of Oklahoma, where he treats skull base and cerebrovascular diseases. Today, we are going to delve into the art of neurosurgery, focusing on the relationship between consciousness and surgical interventions as we uncover various ethical dimensions, the roles of a neurosurgeon, the impact of decisions made during surgery, and the qualities of excellence in the field. Without further ado, allow me to introduce Dr. Graffio. Hi, Dr. Graffio. Hey. Thank you for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Um, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, of course. Um, I'm super excited for this episode just because as someone who's interested in going into neurosurgery, like a part of my identity is wanting to become a neurosurgeon. But I think the process of becoming a neurosurgeon, going through the process of residency and forming an identity where you are a neurosurgeon has an armatorium of experiences and various struggles that you go through to come out at the end. And I think a lot of the experiences between individuals are very different. But also at the end, there are also very insightful, common overlapping traits and experiences of neurosurgeons that are interesting to delve into deeper. And so I'm, I'm super excited for the conversation today. Yeah, me too. This is, a, this is a topic that I would say probably gets less airtime than, um, you know, you might think it would, um, just based on, you know, the kind of people who are drawn to neurosurgery and, you know, the amount of time we spend engaged with this sort of uh, you know, brain space type stuff. But I guess at the end of the day, we're, we're mostly, you know, simple country brain plumbers. And it's, um, it's interesting to take a step back and think about sort of a bigger picture implications of, you know, what we do or what the diseases that we try to treat do. And, you know, I think we're a long way out from really having an understanding of that. But I do think it's a good thing for neurosurgeons in general and people interested in clinical neuroscience to to spend at least a little bit of time thinking on because it definitely has real impacts on patients to say nothing of the fact that it's just like a very human question to meditate on a little bit. Yeah, and and I think um, that's a good segue into like my first question about the humanist humanistic philosophical foundations of being a neurosurgeon. In what ways does the concept of consciousness influence your work as a neurosurgeon, given that you operate on the very organ that generates it? Yeah, I mean it's a that's a that's a, a small question to start off with. Um you know, I guess there's there's a couple of different ways that you can tackle that and you can think about things in terms of, you know, how do I as an individual neurosurgeon think about that and what are aspects of sort of neurosurgical care in general that have, you know, some implications for for both consciousness on the patient side on the practitioner side on the um, you know, the level of abstraction. The The second one is probably easier to, to tackle than the first. And the reason I say that is, you know, we, we have a lot of direct um, sort of outcome-based experience with how neurosurgical diseases and neurosurgical interventions may transform consciousness. And it's something that for some patients uh, can be catastrophic and for others can be, um, you know, life-saving or person-saving, you know, depending on how you want to think about it. And what do I mean by that? So there's, you know, some of the diseases that we we take care of are in areas of your brain that have no what we would call eloquent function, which is to say they contribute to vision, speech, language, motor, movement, things like that. And 
you know, you can take those tumors out and, and not have a big impact on people. But those other areas that are eloquent and, and some of the areas that kind of communicate between them have a much more profound role in what makes a person a person. And it's it's a big deal to operate on someone knowing that on the other side, they might not be able to communicate in the way that they used to be able to. They might not be able to go through the world in the way that they used to. And they might not even, you know, be themselves on a personality level. And I would say that this is an interesting frontier in sort of clinical neuroscience research. There's a handful of uh, papers written. Um, honestly, one of the bigger thinkers in this field is a guy who was a predecessor of mine in this job here at the University of Oklahoma, a great neurosurgeon named Mike Chagrew who's done a lot of work in the connectomic space, which is to say, not just looking at sort of, you know, where's your tumor anatomically or how are you going to get there surgically, but what are the networks of fibers that might be disrupted by either diseases or approaches to remove diseases? And what do those higher level networks do for you in sort of a, a more, you know, abstract cognitive way? And you know, those are not things that we spend a lot of time thinking about in a sort of discrete, objective fashion. But I guarantee you every single neurosurgeon, even most of the people who are early in their training would be able to tell you, you know, here's a person who we operated on and they, and even though we thought that this wasn't an operation involving, say, their language center, it it changed them in some way that, that was profound, that was meaningful, whether it meant they couldn't go back to work or they couldn't interact with their friends and family in the way that they used to be able to. And it is it is deeply humbling to not really understand the mechanics of why that happens. And we're making small steps, you know, as a as a specialty. And I don't mean neurosurgery alone. I mean neurosurgery, neurology, clinical neuroscience, towards understanding what's going on there and what can we do to better plan operations or to better counsel patients when there is no other option about how either a disease or an intervention may alter cognition for them um, or, you know, consciousness, which, you know, are related concepts, but not true analogs. Yeah. I find consciousness to be quite interesting. I I've always grappled with, with what exactly it is. I, in your opinion, do you think it's more of a biological phenomenon that just arises like just because of like our high, higher order biological processes like organized together because of those connections in our brain that induces something called consciousness or do you think there's something more metaphysical to it that we can't biologically or physiologically explain you know i think the real answer is probably both i'm i'm something of a like materialist or um you know I'm an atheist adjacent person. I don't I don't put a lot of um, you know, stock into sort of spiritual concepts, so to speak. But I also am very open-minded. And by that I mean I think that there's a lot of things about life that we don't understand. And there's a lot of things about the brain that we don't understand. And there's a lot of things about the universe that we don't understand. And I think it's easy, you know, there's a great F. Scott Fitzgerald quote from um it's an essay. It's called The Crack Up. And I'm gonna miss the exact phrasing, but it's something like the sign of a the, the true sign of intelligence or the sign of a high level intelligence is the ability to hold two conflicting ideas in mind at the same time without without going crazy. And I think that it's true that you can say, we don't have any evidence to support that consciousness is anything other than a very um, complicated firing of cells. And, you know, that there's, we, we know there's physiology there and we know that the outcome of the physiology is consciousness. And we don't have the capabilities to draw a through line between those, 
but we don't have any evidence that says like, oh, well, here's the part where the soul comes in, or here's the part where, you know, something that is, that is not rooted in, um, you know, cells and tissues and synapses um, would play a part. But I think it's also the case that, you know, I look to physics, honestly, more than biology or chemistry as sort of an exemplar of this idea that there have been a lot of very weird things discovered in physics and a lot of things where there is like hard scientific evidence that shows like a classic example is sort of particle wave duality. And that's, that's, that's training wheels compared to like some of the the very high end stuff um, that's come out of quantum theory, that's come out of astrophysics that, you know, there are gigantic areas of the observable universe that we don't understand and that we don't really know how they interact with the spaces that we do understand. There are, you know, theoretical particles that have either indirect evidence or some evidence supporting them. And this is, I'm, you know, rambling a little bit here, but um, physics has shown me that the universe is probably a lot weirder than we think it is. And that there's a lot of stuff that we can't observe, even like the very simple thing of thinking about the electromagnetic spectrum and that like how many, how many, you know, radiant beams there are coming off of any object in the world. And you can see like this tiny little sliver of them, but all of them are there and detectors can pick up on them. In principle, some of your body parts are detecting some of them like infrared and things like that. They can do damage at a high, high enough frequency, et cetera. So I, you know, my, my default answer is that, you know, consciousness is just an emergent phenomenon from, you know, primary biological processes. But the footnote to that is we don't have enough empiric data yet to really rule out the possibility that there is something else out there that is not, you know, the sort of classical theological soul as such, but that is not just here's a bunch of cells firing with such, you know, crazy coordination that somehow a personality comes out of that. It obviously seems that, you know, there's a lot of things we don't know about consciousness and we might not ever be able to know it just because of our understanding of the observable universe or the access to whatever universe there is out there. I guess my question is, do you think we could have a good enough understanding of consciousness and cognition to where you describe these diseases that impact uh, our faculties and level of cognition and they're in eloquent areas and neurosurgery in a way is trying to address those issues, fix those issues through uh, surgical intervention. Do you think having a complete picture or understanding of consciousness is necessary to be able to treat these patients and bring them back to 100% or is there always going to be a, a piece of them that's lost when, when you open up the brain or open up the skull to access the brain? So I, you know, there's the old adage that was, you know, immortalized in um, Frank Vertos' book, When the Air Hits Your Brain, and the rest of that is when the air hits your brain, you're never the same. And, you know, that's, I don't think that that's a ubiquitous truth. I do think there are some people who we do operations on who have absolutely no um, negative consequence and who, I, I would actually say that's the majority of people we operate on that, you know, they go home the next day or two days later, um, you know, they're themselves, they're able to get back to their lives and doing all the things they like to do. I think that there are some diseases that diminish your cognitive reserve so substantially, um, infiltrating gliomas are a really good example of this, where the reserve is so diminished that when you do an operation, it pushes people into a, a region where the the strain on their cognitive faculties is too much to bear. And you might end up with altered cognition that is not 
directly tied anatomically or technically to what was done in surgery, but that nevertheless is an obvious, this person was one way, you did an operation, now they're another way. And, and I spend a lot of time thinking about this because those are, especially as sort of a junior faculty, those are things that are um, very troubling that, you know, people trust you to take care of them and you do the best you can to do a, a you know, technically excellent, um, successful operation and everything went well. There's no, you know, here's the the technical thing that went wrong or, oh, the tumor had parasitized this blood vessel. We had to take it. Someone has a stroke, et cetera. There, there are circumstances where you you have sort of the putative smoking gun and you can say this was how harm occurred. Um, but I find, at least in, in my practice, that's that's rare. And it's much more common to have a circumstance where everything went very well. And there's, and I, again, I wouldn't say it's common. I want to give people the impression that, you know, anytime I operate on someone, they're, they're altered, but there are rare occasions, but important occasions where someone has an unanticipated and difficult to localize change in cognition or personality or function or whatever it is. And, you know, I, I find those deeply troubling and very frustrating. And I think it's a really important goal of clinical neurosciences to do as much as we can to better understand, is that a phenomenon that reflects a disruption of a connectome or a connectomic system rather? Um, is it a very subtle thing that, you know, we don't quite understand that a function that we thought was in anatomic location A actually has some distribution to anatomic location B or C, or there's more variability person to person we think that there is, or is it something else entirely? Like I said, something related to cognitive reserve or something that's more on the like psychological end of the, you know, neuroscience, brain chemistry, disease spectrum that was triggered by the operation. And then it is not um, structural, anatomical, uh, lesional in nature. You know, the other part of your question, you sort of asked about like, what are we going to be able to achieve and when, and what do you know, do we need a complete understanding? And, you know, I, I don't think we need a complete understanding. I'm not sure where we're going to have a complete understanding, but I do think that clinical neuroscience in general and neurosurgery in particular are changing faster than almost any other area in medicine. And a big part of why I wanted to be a neurosurgeon and why I wanted to work in this space was anticipating that this is going to be a field that changes a ton during the course of my career. And that I think it's a very exciting time to work on these kinds of problems and to take care of patients who have these kinds of problems and to develop new tools and resources, whether it's imaging science stuff, um, you know, focused therapies, new surgical approaches, all kinds of things to try to make surgery safer, gentler, more efficient, lower risk, and to try to understand better when there are people who have unanticipated adverse outcomes you know, what was the reason why? And and how can we do better as, you know, a community treating these people and trying to tender care with them? You know, what what are the risk factors in advance so you can counsel people appropriately so you can help them make a really informed decision? You know, a lot of these diseases are awful. You know, things like ruptured aneurysms and glioblastomas and things like that. It's not, there isn't a good solution. And you want to be able to offer people a treatment, um, but you want to be able to offer it with a as complete a picture of the risks and benefits of the different you know therapeutic avenues as possible and my hope is that over the course of of our careers we will see a lot of big strides made in this area and i, and I think that we're starting to see early indications of that you know I've, I've alluded to the connectomic stuff that's one example there are a bunch of others um of you know emergent clinical science niches translational science niches in particular where we're getting information 
in higher volume and in tandem developing analytic techniques that are novel stuff coming from like the AI and machine learning space that I think will hopefully give us some better tools to predict some of these outcomes. Um, and also just a better understanding of, you know, we are, we are in the stone ages of, uh, of understanding how the brain works still. And you could even chart a line where like on one end you have what's clinical neurosurgery neurology like, and we are centuries behind laboratory neuroscience. And, you know, if we're in the stone ages, laboratory neuroscience has basically just invented like the wrench. And, and, and we need a supercomputer to be able to actually understand what's going on. So there are, there are big gaps between what we're doing, the sort of leading edge of what we understand, and the actual reality of what we hope to someday comprehend. And my, my hope is that technology is going to shorten and close a lot of those gaps, you know, probably in the timeline of decades. Um, but I think it's a very exciting time to be in in any sort of a neuroscience space, in particular, you know, applied clinical neurosciences like neurosurgery. And, you know, that's that's a big part of what compelled me to to pick this particular path for myself. You're talking about, you know, like the outliers of patients where, you know, things go technically perfectly. And, you know, there there's something that almost seems not normal to the uh, what what happens in terms of anatomy or like the lesion occupying the certain anatomy but there's something else that could be affecting this and uh, you alluded to like it may be connectomics being able to explain it or these emerging technologies and we talked about how physics or other disciplines can kind of explain certain processes and mechanisms in the mind consciousness other than outside of clinical neuroscience and neurosurgery in terms of just like being able to address various questions or unknowns that we don't understand right now about various aspects of the brain or neurosurgery. Do you think having like cross-disciplinary approach to rethink how these mechanisms are at play is, is viable? And that's how we have technological advancements in the future in the sense that there's currently psychiatrists are getting into like the deep brain simulation phase and like physicists are trying to explain consciousness through these mathematical models or quantum mechanics or whatnot. And also like the psychedelic space is very interesting with, with the intersection of mind and the brain. So do you think uh, to better understand the consciousness, mind, the brain, and to create more safe, effective therapeutics to address these issues, there has to be a cross-disciplinary uh, collaboration in order to get a better understanding of what's going on? Absolutely. And I, or maybe it's not um, necessary, but it's certainly going to be the thing that accelerates development the most. You know, you mentioned the psychedelic space. That's sort of an interesting one because that kind of gets at what I was saying about physics that, you know, psychedelic experience shows people that there are aspects of, of what's going on in your brain and what exists in the world that in a normal state of consciousness, you can't experience, but, but it's there and it's perceivable in certain heightened states of consciousness and, and that's probably, again, just a shadow of, of what's really there and theoretically perceptible, both in the external world and in the internal world. And, you know, it, it's it's exciting to see that get a little bit more, um, you know, scientific um, appraisal and, you know, validity. I think that there's a lot of really interesting examples in clinical worlds in particular where cross-disciplinary pollination um, has led to huge innovations. Like one really tiny example that I love talking about um, is Andreas Rabe, who found uh, who, who brought um, 
what we call InDesign and Green or video angiography, real-time interoperative aneurysm assessment into neurosurgery. He is an aneurysm surgeon, cerebrovascular guy. Um, and he, at the time, was also doing a lot of trauma stuff. I think his institution just needed someone to sort of be a trauma person. And he happened to go to a general trauma conference and was like wandering around the vendor area and noticed someone had like this sort of funky liver thing. I don't remember if it was for like transplants or whatever, but this device where they could sort of assess flow like through the portal system in real time during a liver operation. And he looked at it and thought like, holy smokes, like you could, this is an interoperative angiogram without having to do an angiogram. Like this is, if you could figure out how to integrate this with the microscope and the other things that we're using, you could take pictures of aneurysms with clips on them, with coils in them, whatever, under the microscope in surgery and get real-time information on like how your treatment is going, are the vessels open, et cetera. And it's completely revolutionized open cerebrovascular practice that there's, no one doesn't use it at this point. And that was, he stumbled upon a device at a at a convention that you know he was probably the only neurosurgeon at or one of very few and he had the the experience in both spaces to kind of get oh i know what this is intended to do i have an understanding of another space where this hasn't been applied and by taking you know tool x to domain y we're going to really transform care there and there's there's a lot of examples of that you know a lot of drug discovery stuff you know, people pick up on it. I mean, everyone knows the Viagra story about, you know, it's a, it's a blood pressure medicine that, you know, they notice as a side effect. All, all, all of these men were, were reporting, you know, positive sexual performance side effects, if you want to call it a side effect. And it's, you know, become one of the most lucrative and, you know, highly valued by patients drugs in history. And those are, those are just a few of the examples, you know, obviously, it's not, it's not sufficient to just take ideas from one world and throw them at another. I don't I don't think that, you know, multidisciplinary approaches are intrinsically going to generate positive results, but I think that they stimulate creativity. And you know, I'm biased because I also I come from a very non-traditional background. You know, I I was an English major, I studied, you know, philosophy, um and art history and all kinds of other things as an undergrad. I was not a pre-med. I went and worked in publishing for a few years, which was great. Um, but then I ended up kind of, you know, changing courses and deciding to go into medicine. And I think a lot of things about how I approach um, both problem solving and, you know, academics, like, you know, writing and um, picking problems to work on and tackling those problems, you know, with experimental data and writing up the results and all of that. I think that a lot of how I approach that is informed by, you know, a more humanities based um, you know, worldview. And I think that that has set me apart from some of my colleagues in particular ways that I, I wouldn't say are intrinsically better, but it's different. And so I will, I will notice things or describe things or have some kind of a, you know, realization that sometimes it's fruitful, sometimes it's not. Sometimes I end up chasing my tail on things. But I think that that, that set of experiences and that set of perspectives has been extremely valuable to me. And it also has helped me relate to patients a lot better, I think. I mean, honestly, the, the thing that's helped me the most with that is I used to work as a waiter for years and years and just learning to, you know, talk to people from, you know, different kinds of worlds and make sure everyone's having a nice night is it's, it's hard to overstate how valuable that becomes when you're, you know, spending your, your days talking to people all the time, which is what we all do. I mean, you know, I, I joke with people sometimes the most important part of my job is to do you know really good surgery, but the second most important is to talk to people and to make sure that they understand what we're doing and why we're doing it and answer their questions and to reassure them or whatever else. And, 
you know, I think that I bring a different perspective to a lot of that because of an interest in the humanities and because of training in the humanities and, and life experience in that niche. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that multidisciplinary science is great. I think multidisciplinary approaches to clinical care are great. I think developing yourself as a multidisciplinary human is really good. And if nothing else, I think it does stimulate creativity. And a lot of people who are more creative, you need a higher throughput. You know, you're going to have more good ideas that, that that are bunk. And I think this sort of very classical, rigorous, regimented scientific approach to a stepwise, um, you know, assessment of problems and, and delivery of solutions like that works. And that that's probably on a longer timeline, um, more efficient, but that's taking tiny little step by tiny little step. And maybe it's not more efficient. It's more reliable. You have fewer missteps. Um, whereas if you're if you're trying to you know combine and recombine very disparate ideas, I think that you are more likely to have a big leap. But in before you get to that leap, you're going to have a lot of times when you you run into walls or when you try something that doesn't work, and you have to be very okay with failure, and you have to be very okay with frustration and with saying you know I'm going to try something because I think it's interesting, and we'll see if this turns into real innovation or if this is just me spinning my wheels. And it seems that the role of a neurosurgeon transcends just being a technically sound, proficient surgeon in the operating room. And so I wanted to ask you, what does the role of a neurosurgeon entail for you, both professionally and personally? I mean, it's consuming. It's 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 everything at this point about me and my life. And I mean, and don't get me wrong, there are other things that are extremely important to me that have nothing to do with neurosurgery, my family being the most important one. And, you know, we all have like our hobbies and interests. I try to read things that don't have anything to do with neurosurgery. I hope that my interest in skiing never has anything to do with neurosurgery. Um, but, you know, it's it's a specialty that that selects for a particular personality type. And that tends to be someone who is very driven and who really wants to um, be excellent and take really good care of the people who we accept responsibility for. And, um, yeah, it's, you know, there's... I, I, there, there, are, there aren't a ton of no moments in my day when I'm not thinking about something that's at least like peripherally adjacent to neurosurgery. And I think the things that I do that are not neurosurgical in nature um, are oftentimes things that, you know, some of them I've selected because I enjoy them, but some of them are things that I have found, whether it's uh, consciously or subconsciously, have made me um, you know, better at my job. And like a really good example is, you know, I mentioned reading, like I, I try to always have a book or two that I'm reading that has nothing to do with neurosurgery. And I think that that, you know, keeps one, it's, it just makes me more interesting. And it, it makes life more interesting when you're not just thinking about the one dull thing all the time. Um, but I also think to have like a broad experience as a person makes you better um, equipped to relate to people who are who are different than you, or who are going through different experiences than you. And who are, you know, it's, I sometimes joke that neurosurgeon, no one wants to meet a neurosurgeon, you know, I only meet people on bad days. And it, you need a couple different things to be able to handle that. Like one is you need to be able to always, um, you know, bring your best self and empathize with people. And, you know, draw on your own personal experiences with similar situations you know, to, to communicate to people that, that you care and that you care about them and that you recognize that they're dealing with something that's, that's, that's hard and that's heavy and that's upsetting. Um, you know, at the same time, you also need things that are going to give you the internal strength to be able to do that every day for 10 different people and that, you know, help you, you know, kind of reset emotionally and, 
you know, I think it's again to the dualities thing. Like you, you can be very present with with everyone that you spend time with and every family member, um, and also learn to process things in a way that you know you're gonna do your exercise and spend your time with your family and you know, maybe have a drink with your dinner and be able to get, you know, get in bed at night and go to sleep and wake up the next morning and do it again without it crushing you. And I think that those other things um, are are absolutely instrumental to being able to do this job well. And they're different for everyone, but, you know, you have to bring, you know, your whole self to the job to be able to to be as present as possible and be as connected to people as possible. You, you need other sort of internal resources. And, you know, I don't, I don't think that it's the same things for every neurosurgeon, but I think every neurosurgeon has some version of that. And, you know, I, I, I like, you know, what I like. Um, but I think it's in large part because, or at least the things that I've clung to the most as I've, you know, become more and more invested in, in my career it's the things that I have found, you know, make it, um, I don't want to say easier, but, you know, that help with the the processing or that, you know, enrich your own sort of emotional stores so that you can, um, you know, do the job without getting caught up in the, the emotional side of things or the fact that some people will have bad outcomes in spite of your best efforts. And, to be able to then sit with that family and, and, and talk to, about them in a way that's honest and that has integrity and that acknowledges that, you know, things did not go exactly how you expected, whether there's a technical error or not. Um, but yeah, those are, you know, I'm, I'm rambling again, but I, I, I hope I'm sort of, you know, giving you a, a, a sort of general picture of my sensibility here in terms of, you know, what I think you have to bring to the table to be a, to be a good neurosurgeon and how it's, it's about a lot more than being technically excellent or smart. Um, honestly, that's probably the least important, you know, it's, it, that helps you be a good scientist, I guess, but being, um, a good communicator and, um, a compassionate physician are as important, um, you know, listening and meeting people where they are as important. And I think that those things are things you can't do well, if you're not thinking about anything except sort of the technical and the scientific and so on. I think that it's helpful to have a, a broader internal world. To be able to do that, it seems very difficult. It seems like a very difficult component to your job. And um, I'm curious to know it. all your past experiences before you got into medicine maybe could have helped you build systems in your mind that maybe could help you address them in a better fashion. But it seems like it almost is like a work in progress as, we, as like you're faced with these situations and circumstances, you have to build the cognitive processes to be able to deal with them. So how did that look like for you going through neurosurgery residency and right now as an attending? I mean, it absolutely is a work in progress. And I think you could find the most senior person and they would tell you that they're still getting better at it. And they're still learning more about themselves and they're still learning more about their patients. And they're still, you know, figuring out how to, how to be the best possible neurosurgeon all the time. Um, you know, I, like I said, I had a little bit of a different background, a little bit of a different training. I've had some different jobs. And for me personally, those have certainly informed things. I mentioned the waiting tables thing, but it's, it's an interesting analog because, you know, you're at work and you have people in the kitchen, you have other people on the floor helping you. And then at every table that you're responsible for, you have a, a person or a couple or a family who they're out to have a nice time. And, you know, maybe it's a celebration, maybe it's Friday night. Um, but you know, your job is to help 
shepherd them through like a really positive experience. And you're going to meet people that are similar to you, that are different from you, that are, and I did this in New York City. So, you know, I met people from all over the world. Um, You know, sometimes you meet people on really bad days. Some people, you meet people on really bad dates and you have to be able to cope with all of that and learning how to communicate with people who are really different than you and having very different experiences than you are is, is crucial to, and I would say this is true for anyone in medicine. Like it's, it's particularly the case when you're doing things like, you know, consenting people for brain operations, but you know, it's many, many doctors spend a lot of their time having challenging conversations with people about, you know, things that are, that they're not experiencing themselves, but they have to, they have to make it relatable and they have to do it in a way that feels emotionally real and they have to connect with the people at the same time. And that's, I think those kinds of experiences are very helpful. Um, you know, again, I mentioned the arts and I think that that, that has certainly like enriched my perspective on human experience. I don't, I don't think about paintings when I go talk to people, but I think the fact that, you know, I've spent time thinking about those sort of like emotionally volatile, you know, cognitive spaces or human experiences, um, you know, psychedelic experiences, those sorts of things have all sort of shaded my understanding of, of what people are like and what people bring to the table. And, you know, I try to always sit and talk to people and try to figure out who they are and meet them where they are. And, you know, try to abandon as many of my preconceived notions as possible. Um, I think it's, you know, you don't want to be paternalistic, but I also think it's, especially in the kind of job that we have, you know, there's a lot of people who don't know a ton about what they're dealing with, but they know that it's scary. And your job is to educate them and explain things in a way that they can understand in language that they can process. And in terms that are emotionally very salient and, you know, I don't shy away from discussing prognosis with people, especially if they ask, you know, you don't tell someone they're going to die the first sentence you meet them. Um, but I also think it's part of our responsibility to to give people a real sense for what they're up against and what the the range. I, I try to put things in ranges sometimes, you know, here's what the best case scenario could look like. Here's what the worst case scenario could look like. And, you know, you asked about sort of training and evolution. And I think that you know, everyone who does this spends time, or at least they should. I hope that they do. I think most neurosurgeons are self-aware enough about this to, to you know, give it some deliberation. But um, you asked about the, um, you know, the evolution of things and, and what it's like in training. And I think that most, you know, neurosurgeons spend some time thinking about these sort of things. And, you know, some of it is stylistic that you kind of figure out how do you want to talk to people and relate to people and make those connections and communications. Um you know, some of it is more about learning, you know, the right ways to put things, how to describe certain diseases or for certain operations in ways that people are likely to understand. And, you know, some of that you get a little shade of in medical school, you know, they'll tell you don't talk so much about percentages, say like five people out of a hundred or something like that, or don't give, you know, numbers that are too abstract. Don't tell people you could have aphasia, tell people, you may not be able to talk if this doesn't go well, or you may not understand language and to try to put things in like really concrete terms. And I think that that's very helpful. And I've, you know, people appreciate it when like you sit down and you take the time to explain things and you, you know, too many open-ended questions and you'll never get through your day. But I think it's important to give people a little bit of time and space to just say like, Hey, do you, you know, that's a lot to take in. What do you think about all that? Or, um, you know, I know that's, we've covered a lot of ground, what questions can I answer about all of that? And to try to give people an opportunity to digest things. If I can, I'll try to talk to people more than once before an operation, you know, I'll try to talk to them at least once in clinic and then the morning of surgery. And, you know, because other things will come up that people, people have forgotten about or didn't think about or some family member brought to their attention. But, you know, I think over the course of training, 
some people figure out, you know, what's their style and what are the things that are important to make sure people know. And there is, for any given operation, there's a handful of things that you would be remiss to not tell someone, you know, about what the recovery is going to be like, what the risks are, et cetera. And I think it's it's a very special thing for a lot of neurosurgery residents that we do more of that boots on the ground patient counseling because we take care of very sick people and we do a lot of emergency stuff. And oftentimes the junior resident is the first and perhaps only person a family member will get to meet before someone is rushed into surgery. And so it kind of forces you to get good at honing that muscle um, early on and figuring out how are you going to you know, fulfill that role. And I think that that's something that's really special and I'm I'm glad that we get to do it. And I would encourage any, you know, neurosurgery residents who are, who are listening to this to, you know, just be as thoughtful and deliberate about that as you can. It's, it, it's a huge deal. We make a, you know, the flip side of like, I only meet people on bad days is, you know, I, I always have an opportunity to make a big impact on someone's life. And I try to really, um, you know, cherish that and take it seriously and, you know, try to be a good steward of, of every individual patient and every family member whose paths I cross. It seems that there's no one right way to do this. Like everyone has their own style and they hone in on that style. So in terms of, in your perspective, are those styles that the individuals hone in on? The difference between being a good neurosurgeon and a great neurosurgeon is just them perfecting those styles? Or are there red herring distinct qualities inherent within an individual that could characterize them as a great neurosurgeon versus just a good one? I'm resisting the hierarchical description a little bit. And I think that being a neurosurgeon has a lot of dimensions to it. You know, there is the technical aspect of things. And I think overall, most neurosurgeons do a good job achieving a good outcome for the great majority of their patients. There are some people who have like really focused expertise in a particular domain and they get better outcomes doing a harder thing more consistently than most people. And I was very fortunate to do my fellowship um, with Dr. Michael Lawton at the BNI. He's, I think, arguably the best microsurgeon in the world, certainly the best cerebrovascular neurosurgeon. And, you know, there are things that he does that very, very few people in the world do. And his personal outcomes are outlier good because he's doing more of that volume and has been doing it over more years than, than most people. And so you can, you know, yes, like on certain technical metrics, um, you can line certain people up. And I, I think most of us, though, are, it's sort of like a plateau where like you're training and then most people, if you do a good job in training and you're busy in practice, are going to do you know, you're, you're in the eight, nine, 10 out of 10 range almost all the time. Um, and there's a handful of outliers who, because of, you know, both their experience and their expertise are, are really doing extraordinary work in a particular space. And, you know, that's certainly where, where I hope to get someday. I think that it's a little harder to, to put like an ordinal ranking to, you know, how people engage with patients. And, you know, there's all sorts of like awful stuff that, hospitals and websites and whatever try to do about, you know, satisfaction scores and star ratings and whatever. You know, I think that feedback from patients is by far the most important thing. And I really pride myself on, you know, trying to connect with all my patients and making sure they feel like that I'm invested in their care and that they are being listened to and heard and having things explained in a way that is that is meaningful um, and satisfying and honest above all. Um, I think most neurosurgeons try to do that. I don't think that there are styles of communication per se that are better or worse than others. 
Um, I think there's a handful of people who have not quite yet learned how to do that thing well, or they're, they, they, everything that was modeled for them was in a style of communication that doesn't work really well for them as individuals, and they haven't figured that out yet. And, you know, you hear stories, of course, about people who don't have great bedside manner or alienate patients or, um, honestly, one of the more common things is probably not being as honest and as transparent as possible in terms of, you know, warning people about what they might be getting into and so on. So, you know, I, I think there are circumstances, and this is why we spend seven years in training and being exposed to it before then, and maybe doing a fellowship and watching other people do it. And it is, it's a super important part of the job. You know, going to clinic is boring relative to um, going to the OR, but you learn a lot about how to be a good doctor in clinic and different programs handle it differently. I love the way we did it at Mayo where, you know, we did mostly hospital and operative focused training for the first six years. And then as a chief, you went to clinic and you had um, essentially your own little panel of patients and there were staff there who who supervised you and you could run questions by them and talk them through things. But it was sort of like a, a faculty year with training wheels on. And that was really good for me to sort of refine how did I want to handle that kind of communication, projecting myself into the role of the neurosurgeon while I was still kind of finishing up my training. And, you know, I think it's good to give people those opportunities. I think that most residents try to figure out how to hit both of those sort of, you know, things I was alluding to earlier that, you know, you need to communicate in a way that that feels aligned with who you are and that you're, you know, communicating honestly and that's aligned with who the patient is. And that's everything from their level of education to their their spiritual beliefs to, you know, their family background, what are their goals? And can you put things in terms that feel real and salient and meaningful to them? Um, you know, I think it's important to to really try your best to to meet patients where they are. And I think that if you're trying to do that and you're succeeding most of the time, um, you know, that's that's most of what we can ask for in in our, our neurosurgeons. Um, you know, I, I aspire to be excellent all the time, like most of us do. And this is a, an, a domain that I consider very, very important. And I, I think most people do. But yeah, I, I a little bit resist the idea that there are certain styles that are that are better than others. I think each person figures out what's best for them. And I think as long as you're being honest and as long as you are centering the patient and putting sort of their needs and what they bring to the table at the forefront of the discussion, then you're doing a good job. And and you know, that's that will carry you through and help you do a, an excellent job being the neurosurgeon to that person. And to conclude the episode, what are you most excited about the future? Oh, man, I'm excited about the things I don't know about. Um, I'm excited to be surprised and to be shocked. And, you know, there are, I, I follow a lot of technology stuff. I think a lot of it is very interesting. It's mostly bunk. Um, like most science is bunk, most trials fail. But but the things that peek through every now and then that you're like, oh, wow, this is actually a huge deal. Um you know, I really don't think we've seen as much of what CRISPR is going to do. I, I I certainly don't think we've seen as much of what, um, you know, a lot of the large language model-based AI things are going to do. Um, I personally have a lot of interest in like AR and VR technology. I'm, I'm working on some education projects in that area. And, you know, education is probably the area where um, I feel like we're going to make the biggest strides in the shortest amount of time by developing technologies that are that are specific to, to medical education in general and neurosurgery education in particular. And I think it will be fun to develop those tools. And I think people who are who inhabit this sort of translational clinical space are very well poised 
to take the new technology and try to apply it to this, you know, like I was talking about earlier with the multidisciplinary cross-pollination stuff, if you can steal things from, you know, the gaming world and turn it into neurosurgery training, like that might be really high yield. And I spend a lot of time thinking about like, what's the textbook of the future going to look like and how can we develop that for, for a medical student or a, or a neurosurgery resident? And, you know, I don't, I don't have a specific particular thing that, that I think is going to revolutionize, you know, my practice or life for my patients, but but I think that we're going to see a lot of change in, in the course of our careers, and I am excited um, and also privileged to get to be a part of that. Dr. Grafio, thank you so much for coming on the Strive podcast. Absolutely. It was an honor. It was a fun conversation. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, have a great day. Mm-hmm.